1: Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish, and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay and Mr. DeVoe is taking uh, some more time uh, after his family bereavement. So, but the good news is, uh, I mean, we send our love to Mr. D and all his family, but the good news is we've got the wonderful, the astonishing, the bearded Mr. Queeve McDonald here with us. Queeve, how are you today, sir? I'm
0: I'm very bearded. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> it's it's lovely to be here. Hello, team. I hope we're all well. Um, and uh, yes, very nice.
1: Thanks so Best much for stepping to Mark, in. Obviously, yes, oh no indeed. problem at all. Absolutely yeah. delighted. Yeah, no, it's great because last week I was just talking to myself, and no one wants that. I did nah. enough. I, I do enough of that in the middle of the night. You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. No need to record it and inflict it on people. So, that um, just to say, Quive. Now, I think this event has sold out. But you and I, we're going to be we're going to be with the mighty. Ben Aronovich soon, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, Tuesday, 7th of February, Waterstones Trafalgar Square. This is going to be fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's very cool. We're I'm
0: just delighted to get it. And, and Ben's great for doing it with us. But yeah, we're doing that because the Love Will Tear Us Apart is out on the 9th, technically the Thursday. So yeah, we're doing that, um, which is really exciting. I've also found out today, by the way, because we're doing Manchester and they've they've already told us we've already... Double, we did a launch last year, which is the first thing back after lockdown they did in, in Waterstones and Deansgate, which is the biggest one in the north. And we've apparently already doubled um, the size of the audience for that. And they reckon we're heading fairly close to being a sellout because there's still a couple of weeks to go, two or three weeks to go. So which is really cool because that's... Wow. Uh, so that's our, our local thing, because that's a Manchester books. So we're obviously delighted. And we're also doing events in Leeds and Liverpool as well, which um, I'm still waiting for updates on them, but we'll we'll see how we go. But it's been exciting to because you probably have more um, experience doing author events than I do. Well, you definitely do. Um, but it's like my fr- I did a first
1: couple last year, but it's great to kind of get out and do stuff like that. It really is. And let's not gloss over the fact Love will tear us apart. This is your new book. This is the third in the Stranger Time series, which I've been lucky enough to read, and it's such a joy. Really, really wow. good fun. Quite um, intense this time. Quite heartbreaking as well. There's 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 a lot of turmoil in this one. This is, do, do well, you want to give us a quick pitch?
0: Yeah, well there is. Well, it's sort of, yeah, I, I, weird actually. I, I must work on the actual. Someone's asked me before what's about, it? and I got oh, it's it's about finishing <laughs> lots of things that happened in the first two books. If I'm entirely <laughs> honest, um, but yeah, it's basically. Um, B- Bain the main character, well, one of the main characters, the editor of the newspaper, has always been convinced that his wife wasn't actually dead, even though everyone was no, she clearly was. And then he starts getting messages from her, uh, basically. And it's it's really, well, it's one of my books, so like there's you know there's a lot of comedy and stuff in it. What did occur to me this week is um, just because it's been a year almost exactly since I wrote it, um, it is a book about grief in some ways, despite the fact it's funny and there's lots of silly stuff going on in it. And um, oddly, my father this time last year died and I stopped writing for pretty much two months in the middle of all that was going on. Um, And it did kind of inform the book, if I'm entirely honest. I think it did because I I was kind of processing. That was the first major death in my life, if you like, of a family Mm. member, you know, that was wasn't a grandparent or something. So it did inform the kind of thing, um, which is weird to say because it is a funny book in the same way my other books are, but it is, there is quite a lot of intensity in someone dealing with that kind of stuff in it, I guess, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, a highly recommended, in fact, the whole series, highly, highly recommended. I absolutely love it. It's such a, such a blast. But all, underneath all of them, there's real, there's a real kind of heart. As as is the case of all your books, Creed. They've all got a big heart. They've all got, uh, they it's you know. It's yeah, same. I think it's that's something that's right. Like, look at, this, at
0: the risk of this turning into a love fest. It's the same with your books, where you have the you do you do because I think if you just try and be funny or you know thing without having the characters going through some stuff, it it becomes very superficial. So it is very important, and it's the secret of it's what I, I did a Terry Pratchett podcast record yesterday where we spent like just an hour and a half talking about Terry Pratchett, which is great. But the biggest thing is his books had enormous heart mm. to them. Um, and the humour wasn't just him trying to be funny. It was him being funny in that context. And they did have enormous heart in them. It's like that Neil Gaiman, great quote about Terry Pratchett, people thinking he's just, you know, but he's angry and he is angry. There is that. Yeah. And there is that great thing in the books. And I think you need that for the books to come across as genuine and, and to really connect with
1: people. So, yeah. Yeah, no, very much so. Very much so. Cool stuff. Right. Well, let's, uh, Talking about authors who are angry about things and, and a sense of injustice, let's, let's talk about our, our special guest this week. We've got Peter May, who has been on the podcast before. He was previously on episode 165. And we talked about his incredible career, because he wrote for TV Had over a thousand TV credits. He was a script uh, editor and script writer. Uh, and uh, we, we talk about that. But, and he had essentially retired. He basically stopped and he came out of retirement for his new novel, which I've got a copy of it here, uh, A Winter Grave, which is a near future thriller where climate change has completely changed the landscape. And he did some incredible research into this, into fossil fuels and, and how climate change, what's happening with climate change. And and you can download that. It's a 16-page PDF, but we're going to make it available for you folks as, as a downloadable PDF. So you can check that out in the show notes. You can download it. But so Peter and I, we discuss looking into the near future, how some ideas are just ahead of their time, and the difference between writing for a contract and writing for yourself. Peter May, welcome back to The bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well, thank you, and it's nice to be back. Wonderful. It's lovely, uh, especially with what is an extraordinary novel, uh, A Winter Grave, which I've got a copy here, and I've got all sorts of research materials, which I'd like to talk about in a minute. But as I understand it, you were... You were, after, you know, an incredible career, which we discussed in our previous episode, you were basically all set to retire. And then the COP26 climate conference happened in Glasgow and, and inspired you to, to write this. Can can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Uh, um, I, inspired, I don't know if that's the right word. Right. It, <laughs> it, it made me angry. <laughs> mm. um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I was just sitting at home. I mean, I... Effectively, I turned down all future uh, contracts for books Mm. and was intending to spend my time reading for pleasure, which I haven't really had the time to do in the last (laughs) few years, Um, and also dedicating myself to uh, my other passion in life, which is music. I have a home recording studio and was spending a lot of time there. Um, But it, it, it so happened that I'd read the IPCC report uh, three months ahead of the uh, COP26 in Glasgow. And, you know, IPCC is the uh, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, body of um, climate experts from around the world uh, who produce reports at regular intervals on the progress of climate change. And they, they were coming out with dire warnings, I mean, dire warnings of, mm. of action that really needed to to be taken before the end of the decade, Um, or we were heading for fairly cataclysmic, catastrophic uh, effects as a result of climate change. And um, that had really struck me. I mean, I guess I, I always knew that it was pretty grave. You know, but it's always very background. You know, it doesn't mm. get that much time in the news. From time to time, something comes out and you you become aware of things, then you forget about it. And, you know, I'm probably like most people in that respect. But having uh, read the digest of that IPCC report, I then I was interested to see what COP26 was going to do about it. Um, and in the end, they did. Zero. Yeah. Um. I mean, the 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 one thing that they had strived to agree on all the way through it was to phase out the use of coal and oil over a certain period, um, and that got diluted at the last minute to phase down, which means nothing. Yeah. Absolutely zero. And that was the the Chinese and the Indians, I think. Yeah. Um, and you know, at the end of it. I mean, you know, the chairman uh, was in tears. Um, And so are a lot of people around the world because this is the future of our planet and it's the future for the younger generation. Uh, You know, my generation, in a sense, is responsible for it to a large extent because we ignored all the early warning signs which have been coming out for decades, way back from the 70s and 80s. Um, And I I was left feeling uh, bereft, angry, uh, you know, because it was effectively commercial and political interests that won out. Um, uh, so a fast buck now uh, in yeah. exchange for the future destruction of the planet. Um, not so much the destruction of the planet, because the planet will recover in, a, in yes. you know, <laughs> in a million years yeah, or so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but human beings might not do so well. Yeah. Um, uh, and I I thought I've got to make myself kind of. Uh, uh, aware of exactly what's involved here what the science is what the arguments are for and against so I spent three months researching it I didn't have any thought at that time that I would write a book I just I just wanted to be more mm. you know cognizant of of what was going on and uh and during that period as I became more and more aware of of the the, the science and and the 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 irrefutable quality of of the predictions that of, of dire consequences, I, I, I realized I, I've got to do something about this. I, You know, I, what does, what can one individual do? Mm. And the only thing I can do is write. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's the only way I have of exerting any influence in the world whatsoever, a very, very tiny uh, grain of influence. But mm. um, I thought, well, I've got to do that because it's the only thing I can do. And so I set my mind then to working on the idea of how I how I could write. How do you write about a subject like climate change? It's so vast and, uh, you know, I, I was at a loss initially. And then I had a kind of eureka moment, which was that I wouldn't write about climate change per se. I would write in the genre that I write, crime thriller, um, a classic crime thriller story. Mm but i would set it 30 years in the future in a world dramatically altered by climate change so that, that that this was a way of of kind of opening people's eyes to what the reality might be like 30 years down the line and 30 mm. years is not very far no. i mean for for you know for a young person looking forward 30 years is a long time uh, for someone my age looking back 30 years is no time at all <laughs> like that uh, and you know so 30 years into the future it's no time at all, uh, and and so I did a lot of research on on what the world might look like, and specifically a, a particular part of the world that I know well, Scotland, mm. um, uh, and it was um, enlightening, shall we say? Well, you say research.
1: I mean. This your publicist sent over a 16 page document which uh, listeners we are going to make available as a downloadable PDF and I do recommend that you download it and read it because it will give you plenty of context the the not only to our conversation but to the novel winter grave as well and it is i mean it's it's very thorough it's very terrifying as well um but going back to that that decision not to write specifically about climate change but to set it in an environment where climate change is happening and it is having serious consequences that that was your solution to sort of write about climate change without making it
2: preachy is that right yeah i, I mean because readers would get bored and annoyed with you very quickly if you're preaching at them um some kind of political or uh, emotional um viewpoint uh and I didn't want to do that. I, you know, I, I'm a storyteller. So the first thing you have to do is engage your reader. Um, but I, I wanted that engagement to have a context that that would hopefully be a little shocking and a little enlightening, or maybe a lot shocking. I don't know. Yeah. Um, because when I did the research and I looked, I found all sorts of interesting ways of Predicting what might happen. I mean, it, and it's a prediction, and it it may not turn out that way at all. Um, but but you know, it's it's quite a good bet. Um, and and I looked, for example, I found online a, an interactive map that you could input various criteria: um, date, um, temperature increase, uh, location, uh, and it would present you with what. Uh, the world would look like in terms of sea level rise Um, and I was specifically looking at um, Scotland, various parts of Scotland, Mm -hmm. uh, which in the grand scheme of things weren't quite so badly affected as other parts of the world and when I broadened the outlook you know, I mean uh, uh, Calcutta Uh, It was underwater. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bangladesh had disappeared. Most of Florida was underwater. Much of the eastern seaboard of the United States. um, Lots of uh, Europe, um, the northern fringes particularly of Europe. um, uh, And the map began to look very, very different. Mm. um and and uh, th- that was enlightening and this is i'm i'm you know i set the criteria just 30 years in the future and uh, you know like a, a 2% rise which is uh, on the basis of current projections is quite modest mm. i mean everybody's still aiming for this 1.5 uh, which is a pipe dream i mean i mean we've passed that threshold uh, in terms of being able to stop it going beyond that um so uh, I was able to then start building a, a sense of what the world would l- look like. And, <clears throat> and and the surprising thing was that, uh, um, although we're talking about global warming, um, the, the way various elements of um, weather and, uh, and uh, sea cycles, uh, circulations in the ocean uh, operate, uh, it, we could actually be looking at you know extremes where you have extreme heat along the equator and extreme cold in the the the, the upper part of the northern hemisphere mm-hmm. um uh, uh basically because of a, a, a slowing down or stopping of uh the gulf stream which is part of a you know a global circulation of water but that's what that's what makes europe and the british isles um, temperate yes uh, yeah. i mean scotland scotland uh if you look at it in terms of latitude is on the same latitude as the alaskan panhandle yeah. uh, um so it shouldn't have the climate it has it should be a lot colder and would be without the the gulf stream uh, regardless of global warming so it, you know there are many surprises in there we were talking
1: to um Amanda Scott on a fairly recent episode. And again, listeners, I'll put a link to the show notes in this. It was on one of our deep dives. Well, she was talking about, because like you, she's deeply concerned about climate change. Uh, and she was talking about writing not as a near future stuff, not as a utopia, but what she called a throughtopia. this idea that you can show the near future and show people living in it. And you have a choice to make it difficult for people, or you can have people, you know, Uh, offering solutions to to climate change. You're just 30 years in the future, very near future. What were the challenges in in bringing the sort of day-to-day life? You know, what are the differences? Someone gets up, makes a cup of tea, makes their breakfast, goes for a walk, moves about, you know, drives a different kind of car, Those kind of quotidian changes, what were the challenges in in bringing those to life? Because once you change something as fundamental as as climate in a story, it it affects everything, doesn't it?
2: It does. Um, I I think the thing that that, that, uh, I focused on was that actually people are very adaptable. Um, And although the changes in the climate are going to bring uh, lots of fairly dire consequences, we will learn to a large extent, to deal with them and live with them. Um, uh, uh, And so, uh, uh, in in a sense, my characters were just living normal lives because the way the world is now is normal to them. Um, So what I didn't want to do was be all the time be saying, oh, and this is such a different way of life. And, you know, you wouldn't do this in the morning. And because we've adapted to it, this is just life. It's how it is. Um, And in the background, you're painting a picture of, you know, the the Clyde Estuary and the storm surges, flooded uh, large parts of Glasgow. um, uh, And they've built levees to, you know, uh, try and protect parts of the city um, and failed to build them in time to uh, save. Um, I was interested um, also, in the sense of because I'm setting something in the future, it's not that far in the future, but things will change. Uh, transport, for example, I mean, we're already moving towards electric vehicles, um, and I was looking at these um, uh, uh, electrical electric uh, um, kind of helicopters, uh, in fact, eVTOLS are called, right? Um, yes. uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, the, the 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 development of these is it's well underway. Um, in fact, I was reading a thing just the other day about how they're going to introduce these uh, in Paris for the is the Olympic Games being held. In Paris. Right. Yes. Time, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. Um. They're going to be having shuttles backwards and forwards from the airport with these uh, electric choppers, effectively. Wow. Um. So you know they're there and it's happening and it's communications. What does a mobile phone look like? Um. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but again, it's the kind of thing where, you know, people aren't drawing attention to these facts. They just are the daily reality. So, uh, um, uh, you know, they they just look a bit strange to us because we're looking into the future. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's... uh things like these vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and i think it's icon mobiles which are like wearables which is yeah. you know where the technology is almost you know part of part of your clothes or glasses or what have you and they're thought controlled this all sounds quite futuristic but it is kind of just around the corner have, having peeked into the future as you have uh is there anything that's going to make lives more challenging for authors for example you know when i was a child you could when I was reading thrillers as a a child, you know, you could put someone in the middle of the woods and they'd be alone and they'd have no one to help them. Now they've all got a cell phone and can call for help immediately, which I know, you know, you you listen to horror writers and thriller writers like the, the mobile phone has been the death of tension. You know, you usually have to find (laughs) an excuse to get around it. Is there anything in the future like that? That's going to, you know, would icon mobiles be, be even, you know, make our lives
2: even more difficult. Um, I don't know that the technology would make life more difficult. I think the the thing, it's the social disruption which is going to affect us most of all. I read a very interesting book uh, on the subject. Um, When you look at sea level rise around the world, there are something like 2 billion people live within 100 kilometers of the sea. Uh, And uh, there are a lot of um, uh, cities, cities, situated on or close to the sea uh, that are going to be washed away or are going to be underwater. And and you're going to have this mass migration of people. Um, uh, The the area around the equator is going to be virtually uninhabitable because of heat. So you're literally talking about billions of people on the move and they're moving to areas Mm -hmm. to escape uh, flooding, heat, crop failure, and they're moving into areas where people are struggling with that, and they don't want any more people coming in. Yeah, and sure. and and we're looking at things like immigration wars, um, and and the immigration problems that you know the government's very happy to. Uh, draw attention to at the moment are absolutely nothing compared to what's likely to happen. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, it's that kind of thing that will most affect the world and, and the social structures of our lives and uh, our politics.
1: Now, listeners, you may be sitting there thinking, yes, Peter's done his research. He's been very thorough in his research. and But he doesn't have a crystal ball. He can't possibly know what's in the future. But you've done this before. In 2005, you wrote a novel. <laughs> Called Lockdown, uh, which was rejected by publishers because they thought the portrayal of London under siege by a flu epidemic was unrealistic. Can you tell us? Can you tell us about Lockdown? <laughs> how that came about, the rejection, and what happened with that novel in the end?
2: Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's strange because I, um, it grew out. We, I was in the middle of writing um, my series of books set in China. Uh, in the in the early 2000s uh when SARS came along uh, I don't know if you remember SARS yeah. uh, respiratory it's coronavirus as well came out of China and everybody thought oh my God this is going to be worldwide and it actually it, it it peaked and fizzled out um fortunately but at the time um I, I was looking at that and thinking oh my God if this really blows up, I was writing this series in China what would Beijing look like if they locked it down because of a, a viral epidemic and and what would it be like for my detective uh, investigating a crime against that backdrop and I proposed this idea to my publisher who said nah <laughs> <laughs> and um so I went off and did something else um and and it was after I'd finished the the, the China series, and I'd written another two books, um, one called The Black House, which was the first of my Lewis trilogy, and one called Extraordinary People, which was the first of the Enzophile series, and I couldn't get either of them published. Um, and most people know, I mean, The Black House went on to become my, my huge breakthrough book, um, <laughs> you know, but at, at the time it was rejected by every publisher in, in the UK. Um, it's actually my French publisher who in, published it in the end uh, in French, <laughs> um, but but I was I was kind of desperate at that time and um, and I I needed to write something that I could sell that I thought would sell um, and I needed to do it fast, uh, and I I looked back at this idea and thought well okay let's let's take this idea let's set it in London. It's can't be SARS because that's come and gone. You know, what are scientists saying is going to be the or the likely next big pandemic? And bird flu was the thing that kept cropping up and cropping up. So that's what I based my research on. Um and I, one of my China books had been uh, set in the USA, actually, uh, and uh, it, it dealt with the uh, resurrection of the Spanish flu virus. The Spanish flu of, of 1918 killed mm. tens of millions around yeah. the world. Um, and so I've done a lot of research on that. And, and actually, if you go back and you look at the way the world dealt with the Spanish flu back then, it's pretty much how we dealt with uh, the coronavirus when it came along. Mm. Um, with the mask wearing, the closing down of schools and shops, um, the, uh, the lock, locking down of, of social activity as we know it. Mm. Um, so it, it, it all happened before. And so when I did my research and I put the whole thing together, I, I, I'm saying, okay, this is what London looks like. We've got this flu epidemic, uh, bird flu epidemic, uh, which is much worse actually than COVID. Um uh, and and painted the picture of that, and uh, uh, it, <laughs> the, as you said, the publishers at the time just weren't interested. I mean, it's it's a, you're you're a crime writer, not a science fiction writer. This is beyond you know <laughs> the scope, and um, and I put it away in a drawer, and you know, but fifteen years later, suddenly we had COVID, uh, and I, I mentioned it to my 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 publisher that I had this manuscript and. He read literally read it overnight and phoned me the next morning. and Said we have to publish this now. This <laughs> is March, March twenty twenty, just as lockdown was starting. Yeah. and so and it became a, like a a worldwide phenomenon. I spent about the next three months locked in my uh, home recording studio w- uh, doing uh, interviews around the world you know i did cnn live and i was mm. doing stuff in australia new zealand africa uh, india uh, spain i mean it just went viral mm. <laughs> um <laughs> to coin uh, a price. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and to, i mean that just came out of left field you know i mean i i guess it, it took my mind off the fact that you know i was as much a victim of uh covid coronavirus epidemic as uh everybody else
1: yeah phenomenal i should also listeners. as um uh, peter did uh donate the money from his advance to charity supporting health workers and and victims of, of covid as well so it's important to note that too peter um before i went to grave you were talking about retirement is is retirement st- having having gone back and written a novel have you got the taste to write more or is the recording studio beckoning is is that going to be what's coming in the future from you peter
2: um, I don't know to be honest um I uh I didn't expect to be writing a winter grave and yet there it is mm. I think uh having removed the pressure of the contract you know I was kind of moving from one three book contract to the next to the next uh and that constant pressure to to produce because you're contracted to write another book uh I mean it was I found it it was getting intolerable, mm-hmm. um, and and when I said no more, that's it. I'm finished. I've met all my contractual requirements. Um, I felt this weight lift off me, right. and so that when I, when I came to write A Winter Grave, it was I it wasn't because I had a contract to write a book. It was because I really wanted to write it, and so if I, when I look into the future. Um, I'm not saying I won't write another book, but if there's something comes up that that sufficiently motivates me to really want to write, I will. Um, But I mean, I mean, I'm I'm actually in Spain at the moment, but um, when I get back home, I'll be finishing off um, a recording uh, in the recording studio. It's a song about climate change that I'm going to release at the same time as the book comes out in January. Um, And I've got had quite a number of um, people working on it with me um and I, I think it's a a friend of mine wrote the lyrics uh, he's a poet uh and, and i think they're very very powerful lyrics um i just wish i could find somebody with a better voice than mine to sing it I, I might be able to do that yet um but but i think it's a really a really good piece and i, I think it goes well with the uh, with the book so i'm hoping it will get some airplay when we we Amazing. i'm not not for not for financial purposes i mean yeah it, i don't expect it to make any money if it did it would go to charity
1: well, if if it's available by the time this episode comes out, we'll put a link in that so people can have a listen to that too. Just to going back to this idea <laughs> of briefly of being out of contract and not having that publisher or agent expectation. Did that mean that you wrote differently? Was you said you felt a sense of liberation. Did that was that In your writing as well, were you kind of thinking, "I'm not. I'm just writing this for me. I'm not writing this because of a contract or you know people waiting for the next in a series." Did that change the way you wrote?
2: I'm not. You know, I'm not sure that it did. It's a good question. Um, because I have a very particular approach to the way I write. I mean, I write very quickly um, Mm -hmm. in a a very structured way. I I write a very detailed synopsis of the whole book before I begin. Uh, kind of scene by scene by scene that probably comes from my tv writing background yeah, yeah. and um and, and so when i sit down to actually write you know i'm not worrying about where i'm going next of course it evolves as you write but i'm yeah. not you know i i know where i'm going next and so my focus is entirely on the writing i write fast i write 3000 words a day um and uh, it, Nothing changed when I wrote A Winter Grave. It was I took exactly the same approach. In a in a sense, I put the pressure on myself to do it. Right. Okay, that's good. And just um, finally, are there any
1: other novels that you haven't? published that might be harbingers <laughs> of doom for the future is there anything you want to tell us Peter? Is anything we should prepare for in
2: 2023 <laughs> no there's all all these um bottom drawers are empty these days um <laughs> uh, uh everything seems to have been published so um no, I don't. I, th- I think there's plenty in in the world to be scared of. Um, yes. <laughs> whether I'll write about them or not, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, in the meantime, folks, enjoy a winter
1: grave. It's an absolute page turning, gripping read, and uh, gives you lots to think about as well. Peter May, thank you so much for speaking to us, and um, I hope to speak to you again one day. Thank you. Huge thanks to Peter May for speaking to me, and that was uh, absolutely fascinating. Like I said, that, that PDF is available for you folks to download, and it is. Um, it's kind of terrifying, isn't it, Queeve? It's it's, it's, it's. It is,
0: and it's it's you know. I mean, it is like I was I was reading through the PDF this morning, and I was saying I think I sent you a message saying I was already in a bad mood because I was dealing with real estate agents. Like this is not the way I'm going to cheer myself up. Um, yeah, it's like well, look, all these houses will be underwater in twenty years. That's the upside here. But yeah, um, at least estate agents will drown first. But um, yeah, but I mean, you know, look, jokes aside, obviously it is it is very grim. And I think it's it's clearly a passion project for him in the best yeah. sense of the word that he he just got he had to do something about it, and it was I thought it was fascinating where we had that thing we kind of go, well, what can I do and what he did was he did the thing he does best in the world, which he made it into a a compelling story that hopefully gets the message across because when you can do that as an author, I think like I'm trying to think there's a few different examples of people um Don Wimslow is the one that comes to mind not about the environment but about the drug war Mm. and his, uh, I hope I'm always recommending his um, cartel series, three books that are just incredible. I would put them up there with the Godfather as the level of sheer brilliance in the writing and everything like that and the storytelling, but they also, you will come out of it. It changed my opinion on the war and drugs completely. Mm. And I very passionately believe, well, frankly, what Tom Wimslow believes now. Um, And in the same way, I guess with this, he's obviously just trying to change minds by doing what he does best um but as you know from working at publishing it's a tricky sell um i would imagine if you're a new author trying to do this you'd probably have a hard time getting away with publishers but because he's peter may i guess that you know there's, there's going to be people who will take it on but there will also be some readers that just go oh i i don't i want escapism in what i read i don't want to be re- dealing with the the horrible truth of what's coming i guess
1: well, we're going to talk about selling the near future and post-apocalyptic fiction in the extended version for patrons. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk about that soon. Um, what interests me with that thing of, uh, you talked about it as a passion project, it's that thing of removing the pressure of the contract. He said, I felt a weight lift. He, and, and finally he, he he was, you know, I mean, we all write under contract. It is a job, but he kind of felt that he was able to write the book that, Perhaps he'd always wanted to write, you know, without fear or. But uh, for us, it's, uh, we do have to deliver, you know, to a date uh, as per the contract, don't we? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's when, you, for most authors, let's be honest, that's the thing. It's typically two or three book deals. Some other people are on different kind of, I think that's probably the most common, I think, would that be fair to say, for publishing yeah. terms from what you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you do have to. I mean, it's a weird thing because the other thing is, a lot of most authors these days aren't full time authors. know as we all know, they're doing other stuff, working day jobs and stuff. Mm. So there is that thing where you're writing to a target. But I think they have to be more flexible with people with day jobs because I honestly don't know how people do it with a day job. I mean, two you know, two hundred words a day and stuff. I guess that's the way you do it. You do do it by chipping away in the way you've you know you've helped people do. But I must admit, I've I've been in a position where I'm lucky enough never have had to to work in that environment because it can be it, but they do they do have that and you kind of go you know and it's one of those things where you want the contract because you know you want the to know there's going to be books coming out i guess the other side is the publishers want to go right well we're going to have a schedule these we know you're going to have a book from you every year at this point um but obviously i mean i'm lucky where i think both of us are lucky that we enjoy what we're writing so it's not been it's never been the oh this feels like a a wait. but i'm sure there are authors out there that probably go god i've got to do another one of those books and i don't know what you know what i'm doing and
1: yeah yeah well there's um there's a couple of things to talk about one, one there is the the author that might have spent five six years writing their debut novel and they get a deal and they're told great love it let's have the second one in a year thank you very much which can be crippling uh it's
0: and like there the is difficult also difficult second out but isn't it difficult second album, with yeah yeah, yeah
1: yeah and you, you you do have to kind of knuckle down and find a new routine and, and if the advance doesn't allow you to quit the day job then you are that is tricky. And we've spoken to a few people who've done that, but the other thing is is write, writing something that that if you're writing con, to a contract and it doesn't make you happy and you're maybe stuck with the series, I kind of I kind of have seen that professionally. I've seen. Mm. I mean, it sort of happened to me. I remember when I was um, starting out as a screenwriter. Uh, you, you're very much a, a wallflower and desperate to write anything to get a credit. And I remember a producer coming to me with an idea. That was my first mistake, accepting that. They said, I've got this idea for a movie. Would you be able to write it? And it's not, it's the kind of movie I would watch. It's not really the kind of movie I would write, but I happily agreed to write mm-hmm. it on spec uh, for very little money. And um, it was two years of misery because I was essentially writing their idea. Uh, The money wasn't good, and the day I walked away from that, and it never got made. It never ever got made. Um, I I I felt a weight lift, as Peter said. You know, I I just uh, I felt I could finally get on with my own thing. So there is a, I think, with writers that starting out who, you know, and we can be a bit desperate and will say yes to anything. uh, I think there is a danger that you might end up in in a kind of a miserable situation. And the other thing I've seen is where. People might have signed up for a three book contract and it might be a trilogy and the first book just doesn't work and they are obliged to write books two and three of what might be Mm. an epic series, hundreds of thousands of words, and they kind of know that hardly anyone's going to read it. Which is, and I've seen it happen, and it's kind of heartbreaking, um because yeah, I suppose it,
0: you have to because you've got to, to fulfill your contract and to get them you know yeah. you've already been, you've already been paid in advance on it, so you have to fulfill it or give them money back, which is yeah, um yeah, I guess that 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 can be yeah that must be rough all right, um it can be by the way, just the, on the thing, I, I had a similar experience where when I got fired from Rastamos. I must have told you a story before, have I? Go on, go on. Uh, Rastamouse the Mouse is a kid's show in Britain. Very popular and it's done great. Um, it was based on kids' t- books. I was doing really well in Kids TV at the time. They asked me to come in and, and write the thing. And I had a meeting with the, the, the author and all this sort of stuff. And the problem I had was the books are great because what happens is the guy who's the baddie kind of sees their error of their ways and there's a kind of rehabilitation message at the end of it, which is very healthy. Here's the problem I had. They wanted to do like twenty-three episodes where twenty whatever was in the p- p- thing using the same characters. So I was like, but that means that character will learn the error of their ways, and then in the next episode, they're gonna to have to go back to doing something wrong again. And they were like, Yeah, don't worry about it. But it was like, but it doesn't it basically sends a way worse message because it just shows that they can't change. And I, I literally that was in my head that like they were sort of just get around it, be fine. I was like, oh and I was trying to write for that. And I was it's like when you said when they when they finally said this isn't working out, I was so happy to be yeah. fired. Because yeah. I was because a part of me was like, I'll just keep working. I'm gonna I've got work ethic, I'll just keep going. And I was so pleased when someone said this isn't working. And they went, Grass the mouse went on and did great. Uh, you know, and good luck to him. But it was just fundamentally in my head it was like, this doesn't work for me. Um and you can get trapped in those situations. I think one of the things with those situations is you have to understand it when it happens. And maybe when you've got a bit more experience, maybe have a chat with your agent and stuff and say, look, this isn't going great. And and you you need to be able to identify, I think, as well, because people can hit the wall a bit when you're just writing a book. And sometimes that's just part of the normal process. So you want to be very mm. careful, you know, that you're not just hitting the wall like you would do in any project. You have to understand that this is now this is something different. Yeah. But yeah, I like, like what I If it's making you miserable, you shouldn't be doing it. You need to find a, a better way out of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you I guess that's one of those things you just need to understand that
1: it is a job. It's a great job being a author, but it is a job. And you know, yeah. you have to remember that. We spoke to um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes to this. We spoke to Mark Huckabee and Nick Osler, who at the time were writing for Peter Rabbit the animated series and since they've written on the Moomins and they've been getting all sorts of awards for that they they're really really good at writing sort of animated TV shows and they were saying you know that the trouble of in that they they had the biggest problem they had to overcome was inventing 22 ways for Peter Rabbit to get in and out of trouble and learn something at the end of it you know it's it's really really difficult but they were saying as well that they are that writer's block thing of, uh, it's problem solving. They, they never had, yeah. they could not afford writer's block because they had to deliver. They talk about a contract. There's no contract like a TV contract. You know, the, oh, yeah. uh, you, you can't miss those deadlines. You've, you've got to deliver because otherwise the whole train crashes. So, you know, they, they were just saying it's, you have to work through it. You have to, you know, and they worked as a pair, which I think writing TV and film, always always helps if you're on your own it can be it can be quite uh despairing but yeah i'll it put can- to that folks you can have a listen to that
0: yeah because i had the when i was doing kids tv by height when i was doing a thing called pet squad which is the animated series that i created well the same company dar mcqueen who are brilliant have now gone on to win all kinds of awards but i was also doing a thing called bear behaving badly with them it got to the point where i was still writing on bear behaving badly as the lead writer i was also the lead writer on pet squad I remember sitting down in December because they'd asked me to and said, when would you like to go on holidays? Cause we just, cause they're, they're such a good company. They had everything planned out, but they also knew that basically I could deliver scripts fast and regularly. And they were kind of used to me doing it. So, but they literally said, right, we'll put you up to here. And like, do you, you want to take two weeks off in June or July? Maybe you say, okay. <laughs> and then we'll go back and then keep, and they had the whole year planned out, um, which was crazy. I've never been that regimented before or since. Um, but yeah, it can be like that. And that was, you know, that was I enjoyed doing that, so it was okay. But that was a that was a year of serious, probably the hardest year of work I'd say I've done in anything, which isn't that impressive because I was in IT before that and I was the guy who got by just, <laughs> just <laughs> I, I was scraping by, let's be honest.
1: <laughs> but yeah, there's 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 a lot of burnout in TV and TV writers' rooms, and it is it is very intense. Very intense. It, it is,
0: it's it's much it's very intense because it's either all or nothing, isn't it? TV particular. Mm-hmm. You're always like, cause you have the work, it's all go, 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 go. And then as loads of sitting around waiting for someone to get back to you and wondering why nobody's got back to you. And yeah, it can be, whereas I guess writing books, but I, I genuinely prefer writing books. I'm not even involved in the TV things of my own stuff now is cause I like the pace better. I like the control better where nobody's really asking me what I'm doing day yeah. to day, week to yeah. week. Um, even if I come in and say I'm not having a good day, my wife goes, just, "We just take the day off, you aren't." I was like, mm, I "Suppose you're good. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it's like I am my own boss, but yeah, I generally, um, yeah, it, there is it's it's a it's a an easier flow, I think, writing a book just by the nature of it.
1: Yeah, I think so because um, my writing partner on the films, John Wright, he's the director, and when he's directing a TV show and he might do one or two episodes of a TV show a year, I know that he he might as well be on Mars. He's off planet, you know. I just yeah. it's so full on that I'm just we so we put everything to one side and then 6 8 weeks later he goes I'm back right let's write something you know which is quite handy because it allows me to write my stuff in between um mm-hmm. but yeah it's 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 intense stuff and you know peter had retired do writers ever really retire do you ever think about retiring? because I don't I want to die with a pen in my hand basically
0: yeah i must have, i can i could see myself slowing down and mm-hmm. like sort of having a better ballads probably Um, but I certainly don't see myself retired. The same as like, I have a couple of mates who are stand-up comedians and I have this conversation with one of my mates in particular all the time where he's picked the date he's going to retire. And I'm like, I've known you for 20 years. What on earth are you going to do except sit around all day and write gags and have nowhere to do them? It's like, (laughs) you don't have a hobby. You literally have no hobby. Um, And it can be one of those things when you have a job like this, especially when it's quite, if you're working full-time and then doing something after it, One of the things you'll have, like I had this in a weird way when um, I gave up doing stand-up. Stand-up sort of came with the social life inbuilt. And I had the thing where I was now in my house all the time because I had no reason to leave it. And my wife was like going, you need to find a reason to get out of this house because you're driving (laughs) me crazy. You just you just go down to the office. You need to find something to do with yourself, like because you're not traveling the country anymore and you're not seeing Gary three times a week and sitting around eating chips while telling each other (laughs) stupid stories. You need to find something else. But it is one of those things, the transition between being, um, you know, a part time and a full time writer uh, is a big one. And it is it's kind of weirdly like, you know, when people retire and they've no idea what to do with themselves, yeah. which is a very common yeah. thing. Obviously you're still working, but at the same time you you do have to find a balance to it and stuff. But yeah, I I yeah I, I bet you Peter May's gonna write another book after this one to be honest. Uh I because I think it is in people that they they don't really retire. Even Terry Pratchett up until the end, he was still going and mm. uh he Interestingly enough, I know when reading the book that like even before his his illness, he wasn't really signing long-term contracts anymore because he didn't really want to. He didn't like the, like you were saying, about not having a contract. Mm. He deliberately avoided them from what I can gather from the book. Um, But he was very It didn't really matter. He just had to turn up and tell him he'd write a book and they would literally be popping champagne corks. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think it's... yeah. I know Peter May. I think he's, from what you said in the interview, clearly um, big into his music and stuff like that. But Mm. I think... You don't. You're not as good at something as he is, and just stop doing it. And it's not like you're a footballer where your body gives up on you. As long as you can still write, you, I think you will probably. I mean, it's part of the thing. Like, if you look at the big crime names in publishing, crime is one particular genre, but all the big names in British publishing are still there. But even one of them said it to me that we're all just getting older together, Mm. and they have a really hard time in publishing establishing new brands. Frankly, in those because like the big names like Peter May. And, you know, but that's, so they're all just keeping going and the publishers are like, you are going to keep going, aren't you? Like even Lee Child is now, his brother's writing the books
1: with him and everything because the publishers are terrified they'll actually retire. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about this more in the extended edition. Now, folks, this episode of the podcast has been brought to you by the wonderful people who keep us going. So our bestseller academics, the people in the bestseller academy, and our patrons on Patreon. Uh, so if you join the Academy, you get to hear our extended episodes, you get to hear our deep dives. Same with uh our patron as well. So if you want to support the podcast, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. If you want to find out more about the academy, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. There are links in the show notes as well. And in the extended edition myself and Quive are going to be talking about future challenges for authors, selling the near future and post-apocalyptic fiction, swapping genre and the whole bunch more. Okay, over on social media, lots of good news happening over there. We had um, a lovely tweet uh, from Jenny Roman, who is at Slightly Turquoise on Twitter, and she says uh, she's written a blog on how the 200 words a day challenge has transformed her writing, uh, and she said, "You know, I've I've read gazillions of books on uh, on the craft of writing, but this one really, really works." Uh, so I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so you can check that out. And the 200 word a day challenge, completely free to sign up to. Follow the hashtag uh, 200 words a day on Twitter. You'll find me there and writers like Jenny who are doing little and often every day, and it's making a huge difference. And one person who's benefited from that is our very own Mark Hood, who, uh, in terms of uh, the 200-word-a-day challenge, is just the master. He's, his work count has been astonishing. I think he's up to something like 700,000 words written so far uh, on the wow. challenge. And his book is finally here. He says it's finally time. The Fairies Want Me Dead, which is his new book, is available for pre-order and coming out on the 1st of February. And it's an absolutely cracking read. So I'm going to put a pre-order link in there. Huge congrats to you, uh, Mark. It's been a long time coming, but uh, very, very much well-deserved. And Congrats. something that's that's happening on uh, it's kind of happened kind of completely on its own over on the bestseller experiment Facebook group is Jackie Kirkham, who's a valued member of our of our group. There, she started these regular what she calls "shut up and write" lessons, which is where you know writers just gather together just for an hour or so and then just shut up and write and be accountable to one another and it's really working we are uh, rachel chapman in our group she said, i just want to say thanks to jackie kirkham for organizing the shut up and write sessions i joined today for my first one and banged out 1022 new words just what i need it was really motivating to join in if you're in a slump word wise and you can make the next one it really is worth it well how do you enter the facebook group for the bestseller experiment you support us on patreon uh, it's one of the many uh and also sign up to the Academy as well. It's one of the many bonuses you've got there. So go to experiment.com forward slash support to find out more. So, McQueve, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's been uh, an absolute delight. It's been a real pleasure. It's great to catch up with you. I'll be seeing you in the real world soon as well. Yeah, it's um, exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's it's going to be an interesting year. Definitely an interesting year. All, all kinds of stuff going on. Now, folks, best if, to look with, the mo- with the movie, by the way, we haven't, yeah, I mean, I kind of. This is now, listeners, we're recording this almost a week before this episode goes live. So the film isn't out yet, but by the time this episode goes live, the film will have been out for a few days. So it would have been reviewed and uh, people would have seen it at the cinema. And I have no idea what to expect. It's just, Are the, you sc- going to go see it at the cinema? <laughs> no way. No what? way. I, <laughs> I've, I mean, I, I've done it twice already. We went, uh, when we went to the Sitges Festival in Spain, we had two screenings there. And both John and I said the same thing. We said, we're going to sit down for 10 minutes. We're going to sneak out the back. But both times we ended up sitting through it all the way through because the audiences there were great. But that's the festival audience. You know, <laughs> That there are people who... are Big horror fans, monster fans, and they're very excitable, and they make noises and they whoop and they clap. What I don't want to do with all due respect to the view in Thanet up the road for me is sit there on a Saturday where someone's looking at their phone, someone's crunching on popcorn oh, you know okay. and I, yeah. I I just can't i can't I can't do it, can't bring myself to do it so um so no uh I don't think so anyway I can't yeah. Yeah,
0: no, I, I can kind of see that. I did have that in a shop in Germany where someone came in and my books were on display because I was just in there doing stuff. And then this this teenage girl started telling her mother she got the first one, and like my wife was there and I'm going over there. I said, "Well, I don't want to, I don't want to be here for the conversation." Yeah. Now, as it turned out, she likes the books, and the guy literally behind the counter said, "You know, the guy you wrote is just standing over there," <laughs> <laughs> which they were a bit. Oh, um, and then they came over and said hello and stuff. But yeah, I I I can. Now you mention it, yeah, I can I can see why you wouldn't want to be there with. Someone Somebody looking at their phone. Um, Yeah, no, that does make more sense. Well, I'm going to go. I'm bringing my mate because I'm, as you know, I'm a wuss who's terrified of horror movies. I haven't seen any of the great horror movies, but I'm going. Um, I'm bringing my mate Gary Delaney because he's a big horror buff. So oh. um, me and me and him are going because uh, I basically said because we always just go to cinema together and we never go to horror films because I'm scared of them. But I've now said <laughs> because as you you promised me that I'm thanked in the in the
1: credits at the end. You are thanked in the credits, yeah. So
0: because of that, I'm willing to go see a horror movie. So I hope you appreciate the sacrifice I'm making. Um, and then Gary's <laughs> delighted because neither neither me or his wife ever go to the horror movies with him, so he's chuffed now he gets to go to see one. So uh, we're we're going hopefully next
1: uh, Monday, all being well. Fantastic. And the reason Queeve is thanked in the credits is because, I mean, I've got Irish family, but I'm not Irish. So, and we've written this script set in Ireland and we gave it to you and another uh, Irishman I know called uh, Lawrence Doherty. And we said, look, what are the the terrible, how have we put our foot in our mouths? What have we done? What are the terrible Irish cliches set us right? And um, I think we did all right, didn't we?
0: I don't think there was, yeah, there generally wasn't uh, anything that was like, obviously wrong in that sense i know what the main thing we discussed was which ended up getting taken out was a character in the pub was going to say something racist and i was literally going through about how an irish person would be racist <laughs> um which is a unfortunately there's let's just say there's been a quite a bit an uptick of that recently in ireland god helps um but um yeah that was the only discussion about like what was the kind of thing that that they would say but that i think that ended up getting taken out because it was such a, a a difficult yeah. moment, would not
1: it? Yeah, that got cut. The other thing that got cut was I put a fruit machine in an Irish pub and you said they... I told have- you that, yeah. That was yeah. What I said. "Get yeah. That's not...
0: They never have them and they don't... They, they they can't have the gambling ones and they also don't like the quiz ones yeah. to the point where I think... I use this in a script, but it was true based on my mate's granddad's pub where someone put a quiz machine in that was making all this noise and uh, <laughs> they literally... Um, someone distracted the thing and they got a trolley and take it and took it and put it outside in the car. Like the patrons (laughs) took it outside and put it in the car park. And Iran came back and said, where's my quiz machine? And we're like, they're all just sitting there going, we don't like it, we're not having it. (laughs) Um, And that was how they got the message across. But yeah, no, they don't, they generally don't have them in Ireland. I think that was the biggest point. That's right. I forgot now. It's good. It was, yeah. when the, every yeah. time the pub comes up now, I'm going to point it at Gary, you see, there's no quiz machine. That was me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that bit, because it was a scene where someone was thrown against it. And that's been cut, actually. That was cut before we even shot. So, uh, so yeah, but yeah, Ah, brilliant! Thank you, Quayve. Much appreciate. Yeah, do stay. Always hang around for the end credits, folks. You never know whose names you're (laughs) going to see in there, Uh, folks. If you want to get in touch, uh, we're on social media on Facebook. We're Bestseller Experiment on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Bestseller XP. Drop us a line at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there, and sign up to our newsletter as well. We send up send out a regular newsletter which has all the inside information, all the links that you need uh, to find out more about us and the academy and patron and all that good stuff. Quave, good luck mate thank you so much Uh, you know Love Will Tear Us Apart coming out very very soon Uh, if you haven't got that one get the other two first read them in quick succession and just treat yourself folks again stick a link in the show notes you can check that out
0: cheers thank you very much it's been an absolute delight
1: lovely stuff and it's a goodbye from Mark 1 and it's a goodbye
0: from Substitute Mark 2
1: (laughs) goodbye Four, five, six, seven, eight. That that was nine.
0: You said do it on eight. That was nine. (laughs) You an idiot. Do it again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight.
0: That's nine. You said you were
1: doing
0: it
2: on no, no,
1: no. But <laughs> <laughs> this is like that scene in Time Bandits. Who goes I was on say, two? It's like, Nobody was like, goes a on weapon. 2 <laughs> a weapon the weapon. Throwing you over the thing in
0: right. the toilet.
1: We'll do it on nine then. We'll do it. No, do it on nine. Because that's All how right, I've nine. done it for six years. Okay. Okay. Right. Go on then. Oh. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight.